hope you can excuse the handkerchief, but allergies are afoot. <laughs> you know, thinking about the uh, <clears throat> women's game night on Friday, I asked Marin, since now transgender boys can participate in girls' sports, could I come to the women's game night on Friday? She said, by all means. <laughs> I'll let that pass. Isn't it wonderful, though, to think about how God has used this church to launch missionaries into the world? I am impressed each week as we get the funds report to see from this church where we don't have any wealthy people pour so much money into world evangelism. It's astounding what God has done through this church and what a privilege to be a part of it. All over the world, people have wrestled with the question, how did we all get here? How did this uh, creation happen? How did we humans come to be? And that question has been pondered in every culture, in every nation, in every generation. And many different answers have been arrived at as a result of that. Remember, David wrote that the heavens are telling the glory of God in the expanse, the wonders of the work of his hands. And as different cultures have seen the heavens, they've seen the lightning, they've seen the mountains, they, what is all of this? Where did it come from? And different cultures have answered that question in different ways. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the gods of the Greeks and Romans. The Greeks had uh, Zeus and the uh, Romans had the same god. They called him Jupiter. The Greeks had Aphrodite. The Romans called her Venus. The Greeks had Poseidon, the god of the ocean. The Romans called him Neptune. On and on. They had actually 34 gods. And as you read their stories about these gods, you'll notice that they all were just reflecting human nature. They had affairs, <laughs> they did this, they did that, just so the gods really, in their minds, were just like humans, only gods. What kind of an answer can we come to? I grew up <clears throat> in church, <laughs> attended Sunday school as a boy, child, and you know, in those days, children's church did not exist, and so you sat in the Sunday service and heard the preaching. And to this day, I must say, I've never heard a man make the Bible come alive more than C.W. Lipsy, whom I heard preach and preach and preach as a child. Now, when I was a boy, it was a custom for every February for every church to have a Boy Scout Sunday. And so you came to church in your scout uniform. February of 1941, my friend Jimmy Foshi and I were there in our Cub Scout uniform. And as the invitation was offered, we both went forth and declared our faith in Jesus. And immediately we were taken into the baptistry. He first, I was second. I remember this very day what that experience was like. It was as if I were in a tub of Alka-Seltzer, just effervescent bubbles up about me. And when I came out, I said to Jimmy, wasn't that water unusual? 
He said, I didn't notice anything unusual. (laughs) To this day, I have to wonder, when I was immersed into Christ, did God do something special and something unusual? From that day on until today, I have not missed a day of prayer for 80 years. Not always mature prayers. Matter of fact, I'm so thankful that God said no to a lot of my childish prayers. It had been awfully to said yes to what I was asking for when I was a child. But over the years, I studied to know the Word, to have a relationship growing with God. But there was something else going on with me at the same time. Again, from my earliest years, I became interested in the sciences. I had my own chemical lab. I'd set up out in the barn and did experiments with chemistry. I became very much interested in astronomy. I became an amateur astronomer. And I recall one summer, led by an astronomer, we met in Spalding Park every week and mapped the heavens, how the constellations had moved, the distances between them, all those kinds of things. I began to gain knowledge of astronomy. When I was in junior high school, I gave a lecture to a science class on dinosaurs. (laughs) And I puzzled over evolution, these things, and yet here was the Bible. And I recall going to the ministry minister when I was about 17 years old, and I said, what about this and what about that? He said, well, the Bible says. I didn't say it to him, but I thought, you idiot, I know what the Bible says. That's not what I'm asking. But there was no one to help me in my pursuit, wanting to resolve what I was learning in the sciences and what I saw in Scripture and what some presented as contradictions. I thank God that along the way I met Ralph Dornetti, who gave me no answers but gave me directions in which to think and pursue. And still, even though these things were going on inside of me, I sensed God had a call, went to Cincinnati Bible Seminary, and I'm so thankful for Professor John W. Wade. This is an amazing man. I don't care what subject you were discussing. Sooner or later in the conversation, you realize he knew more about it than you did. (laughs) And it was any kind of a discipline. And then Dr. George Mark Elliott, what a tremendous teacher teaching apologetics. As I began to listen to these men, things they explained, my questions began to get less and less until I came to, I'd say, around 90% probability that the Bible is true. And then I took a 10% leap of faith. Something happened that was, I must say, existential. It all was true to me, totally transformed. And that's been true even to this day. One thing that we see in the cultures who have sought to figure out how did it all start. They've looked at the heavens. They've seen the lightning. They've seen the clouds. They've seen the turbulence in the ocean. And subjectively have made deductions. I thank God that I'm convinced that the Bible is God's objective revelation of himself. I do not have to use any subjectivity or reasoning, but I turn to Scripture, the Word of God. Oh, I'm fully aware of the things that have happened with various transcripts and 
manuscripts and things over the years, but essentially, page by page, word by word, it's true. In the midst of the days that we seem to be facing right now, so much suffering, so much trouble, so much uncertainty, I can't help but hearing that old song, Does Jesus Care? (laughs) Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song? When the burdens press and the cares distress and the days grow weary and long and then that wonderful assertion, oh yes he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. But you know, sometimes I believe we sing these songs like somebody whistling in the dark. (laughs) Is that true? Believing that the Bible is God's objective revelation of himself. That's where I turn. Remember Jesus when Philip said, Father, show us the Father, and that will suffice us. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. (laughs) And more than once in Scripture, we see the truth put forth that one reason came to the earth, Jesus came to the earth. Not only did he come to atone for our sins, but to reveal the Father to us. When I see Jesus, when I see his heart, his emotion, when I see his values, I'm seeing God the Father. It's interesting, there is a stream of Christianity that holds to the view that God is immutable. He has no emotion. Matter of fact, John Calvin wrote that God is neither sad nor angry, but always rests in his sweet repose. I think Scripture contradicts that statement. Think about our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember in the triumphal entry, as he approached Jerusalem, he came to the brow of the Mount of Olives and looked down on the city. Here was a gleaming second temple, a crowd pouring out to meet him. Jubilation, Hosanna. But he wept. He looked at that city and saw 40 years in the future when the Romans would come and destroy the temple, slaughter the people. And he wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have called you unto me as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings. But you would not. Henceforth, your house is left unto you desolate. And he wept. More than once we find Jesus encountering a crowd. And he looked at the crowd and on one occasion he said, They're like sheep without a shepherd. And he was moved with compassion toward them. On one occasion he and the disciples were in a boat and they came to the shore and there was a crowd there. And Jesus was overwhelmed with compassion and he healed them of all of their diseases. 
Remember when he fed the 5,000? We're told that he was moved with compassion. He said they've been with me for three days. They've had food. He, he was moved with compassion. Miraculously fed 5,000. And of course, can we forget, as Bill mentioned a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus came to Bethany, where Mary and Martha were weeping. Friends were all weeping because Lazarus had died. And as Jesus saw the great sorrow in their hearts, Jesus didn't just have sympathy, he had empathy. And he wept. Some weeks ago, Bill mentioned that the word that we often see, sorrow and grief in the New Testament, is a word that speaks of the guts. You notice King James often translates that bowels. (laughs) And if you're a person who really has empathy with people, and you see suffering, and you know the struggles are under, you feel it right here. And Scripture describes God that way. Isn't that something to think about? Does Jesus care? He does. He does. But does that mean he solves all of our problems? (laughs) Takes away all of our pain? Removes all of the struggles? Not at all. Picture in the book of Acts where Stephen, Scripture says, full of the Holy Spirit, was dragged before the court, and there he proclaimed Christ. And he said to the Jewish people, you've been hypocrites. And he began to proclaim Jesus. They became so angry, they dragged him out of town and began to stone him. And as they were stoning him to death, filled with the Holy Spirit, the Scripture says, he looked up and said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus, who cares, made no move to stop the stoning. He watched Philip die. One of the most striking things I've seen in the book of Revelation, remember the scroll with the seals and John lamented, who can open the seals? And finally an angel said, the Son of God, so on and so on. And he began to unroll the seals and the scroll and finally came to the sixth one. And John said, when the sixth seal was opened, I saw sitting below the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of their faith in God. And they cried out, Lord, how long, how long will you wait to avenge us? And the Lord said, wait a little longer. Until all of those whose names are on the list to die for me have died. Think about that. Am I on that list? Are you on that list? Am one of those? Am I one of those who someday God will honor me by letting me die because of my faith in Him? Something to ponder, isn't it? Does Jesus care? Yes, He does. But He doesn't just automatically punch a button or pull a lever. (laughs) And it's changed. Remember when he came to the fish gate at Jerusalem and there was a pool, pool of Bethesda, it's called in the Jewish language at least. Evidently this was some kind of a pool over a 
place in the earth, a fissure in the earth, where occasionally the water would bubble up. And the Jews came to believe, well, there was an angel that would come down and touch the water and make it do that. And so there was something miraculous here. And as you said about that pool, if you were sick, had a disease, had an illness, were crippled or blind, if you could be the first one in the water, you were healed. Well, as far as I know, there was no report of anybody healed. If you jumped in and weren't, oh, well, I guess I wasn't first. Remember as Jesus came to the pool, here was this crowd of sick people, crowd of people wanting to be healed. He ignored them all but one man and went to this man and said, would you be healed? The man said, I would, but I don't have anybody to help me in the water. And so somebody else always gets in first. All Jesus said to him was, take up your pallet and walk. <laughs> and to the man's surprise, he did. One man, what about all the rest? I'm not God, so I can't answer that question. <laughs> but it does not mean because Jesus cares that he removes from us all of the vicissitudes of life, all the difficulties, but oh, there are those times <coughs> where his response to our prayers <coughs> Pardon me, it's, it's so obvious. This past week when I was shopping for groceries, there was a particular situation for which I was desperately interceding while shopping. And as I left the store, just amazing, I suddenly had this sense of really talking to God. And later that day, the thing for which I had pleading, been pleading, came to pass. And my heart was filled with rejoicing because of that. You know, you say, well, you know, here's this vast world, all these continents. Who knows how many people in the world does God really know me? <laughs> you remember when Jesus was sending out the twelve? Toward the conclusion of that chapter, he says, When you're going out, don't be anxious. Not a sparrow fall to the ground without the knowledge of your Father. You're more valuable than many sparrows. And then he said, The hairs of your head are all numbered. How is that possible? <laughs> Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, The Father knows what you need before you ask Him. How is that possible? Remember in Psalm 119, David said, You know, He knows my going out and my coming in, my rising up, my sitting down, my thoughts that are still afar. I haven't even thought them yet. He knows every word before I speak it. He said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I'll tell you, David, too wonderful for me too. How is that possible? Friday morning, I took Jimmy to advanced pain management for an injection into his spine the room was, waiting room was full. 
There wasn't an empty seat anywhere, at least a dozen people, maybe more. Immediately next to me was a lady with a sweet little four-month-old girl, cutest little thing, looking at me with bright eyes, and I began to talk to the child and babble back. We had a bit of a conversation. Over here was a woman whose leg, right leg had been amputated just below the knee. Across the way, there was a woman attended to, she was in a wheelchair, attended to by her son, who was probably in his 30s or 40s. I learned she had had 16 children. She was 82 years old, struggling. I commended her son. By the way, I, in those situations, I always have an opportunity to speak to people about God's goodness. May God's grace rest upon you, dear man, for caring for your mother the way you do. Oh, he responded so much to that. But as I looked around this room and all of these people, various infirmities, some obvious, some not so obvious, every single one of them has a life story. And God knows every one of those stories. He even knows more about them than they know about themselves. <laughs> the motives, the struggle, the heartaches that they don't always understand. I don't always understand mine. But he knows and he cares. And sometimes he intervenes in a way that we cannot deny he is moved. Sometimes it's like Paul who cried out three times to have his infirmity removed, his thorn in the flesh. And God answered him. He said, no. <laughs> he said, my grace is sufficient for thee. And then Paul said, in my weaknesses then, I am become strong. I thank God that Jesus cares. And even though I do not always see some manifestation that I can observe with my human eyes, I know He cares and His grace is sufficient because He does. Does Jesus care? When my heart is pained Too deeply for mirth and song When the cares distress And the burdens press And the day grows weary and long Oh, yes, He cares I know he cares, his heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? When my sad heart breaks 
Oh, how it aches. Is that aught to him? Does he see? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are dreary, the long nights weary, I know my Savior cares. Peter wrote this, Be anxious for nothing, but cast all your burdens upon him. He cares for you. I'm thankful that's the kind of God we have in Jesus' name.